You're listening to the Propane Fitness Podcast, your ultimate resource for fat loss and muscle gain with none of the gimmicks. With your hosts, Yusuf and Johnny. Simple rules, dramatic results. Welcome back. We are honoured today to have Yuri Marmestein. Yuri is a handstand and movement coach with elements of bodybuilding and general movement. And I actually don't really want to put him into a particular bucket because similar to me, he's just like physically greedy with with training um, and he takes a, a great playfulness to it. And he's a guy who manages to actually execute the physical generalist mentality really well because a lot of people that you see doing this, they end up kind of diffusing their focus and just being a bit crap at everything. Whereas Yuri manages to really draw on the synergy and he's an amazing hand balancer. He's a great acrobat. He's in fantastic shape and it's really cool to see all of this come together. And I've been very excited about speaking to Yuri myself as well. So Yuri, hello. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, Thanks for having me. I think one thing that I'd love to, to start with is someone told me recently that you you learned most of what you do now as an adult and this wasn't you, you weren't someone who had been kind of coached at the age of five with some guy like pushing you into the splits and and so you're you're you've been able to pick up all of this like physical intelligence and learning as an adult which is a, i think is a very different skill and you've also been able to articulate that to your audience which is another skill entirely can you talk to us a bit about your your background prior to starting training and how this has taken you to where you are now yeah, yeah for sure so I, I will say one thing the with gaining physical intelligence there was a lot of uh steps of physical stupidity that came in order to gain physical intelligence uh, and and that's what like one of the things that having a coach can potentially prevent but basically yeah i never i wasn't could particularly athletic as a child i wasn't a, let's say average as far as athleticism goes, you know, the internet wasn't invented yet. So I played outside, I did some sports, I wasn't good at any of these sports, which now that I have that perspective, I'm actually really happy that I wasn't good at any of the sports that I did, right? I got a lot of last place swimming ribbons. I'm a shit swimmer, but I can swim, I won't drown. So that that might even be better than being a high level competitive swimmer, because I know that I won't drown. And I don't have the pressure of having to beat someone in a race, right? I played like whatever, baseball, basketball, I played C team. So you have A and B team, and then C is like the dregs of the, whoever wants to play. Um, I did track, I did soccer, football, football, whatever you want to you nice. call it. I, I played probably the longest. I did ultimate frisbee competitions as well. And that was like the stuff that I did before. And I, you know, I was a kid, so I climbed trees and I rolled down hills and stuff. And I, again, I wasn't particularly active or athletic as a child. It was just stuff I did, stuff my parents put me into, stuff that I was never any good at, but it doesn't matter because having that perspective of doing all that stuff is important. Um, started getting into more of the fitness stuff kind of at the end of high school. I started getting into martial arts, kung fu, also kind of self-taught, you know, took a couple classes. I don't have any money, so I couldn't afford to, to take continuous classes. Um, Sparta the Friend, you know, kicked trees outside, watched a lot of Jackie Chan, Bruce Lee movies, Highlander, the series, and started getting further into that. Started getting into kind of handstand and bodyweight strength because as I continued 
continue to do research. There wasn't, this was before YouTube, so there wasn't a lot of online materials, but you could find these old school strongman books, which talked about body weight, strength, handstand, these basic exercises, very kind of old school holistic mentality, which I still try to employ. Uh, from there, I got into capoeira. I got into more martial arts. I got into more gymnastics. Then I got into, into cheerleading, into weightlifting, into all this other kind of stuff. So it kind of went from there. But, um, but yeah, that's, I never had a consistent teacher or coach. And, um, luckily what, by the time I moved to Vegas and even in Cleveland, I had some people that I could consult. I had kind of some mentors that if I was stuck, I could ask them questions and steer me in the right direction. And that was very helpful, but I didn't have any of that at all for the first few years. And in doing so, it was an exploration. So what does that mean? It means I didn't know I was lost in the woods. I didn't know where any path would lead. So I would follow a path and maybe it would go somewhere. Maybe it would be a dead end. But then what it comes down to is that I, I stunted my own progress to some degree. Now, there's no positive or negative. I stunted my own progress as a uh, as a practitioner, as an acrobat, especially because you build these habits and then you build upon these habits. And that's why gymnasts start at five years old, because by the time they're, they're 18 or 20 and doing these crazy skills, they're not just chucking those skills. This is years of drills and body positioning that has been ingrained into them. And if you don't have that, none of that is really natural to do. It has to be taught. So in that sense, as an acrobat, for example, I really kind of fucked my own progress. But when I got into teaching, I realized I understood the process and the mistakes a lot better. So that's kind of the, the trade-off is you, you take a lot of these Olympic, whatever high-level gymnasts, and you ask them to break something down to somebody. They don't know how to break it down. They know it for themselves because they feel it because they've done the drills. It's another, and that's why it takes sometimes these high-level athletes another 10, 20 years to be a good coach, because it's not just, obviously you have to do the thing, but it's not just enough doing the thing. You also have to understand the learning process and understanding the mistakes. And that's one of those things that teaching yourself gives you those lessons, whereas being with a coach. So basically, I don't, I don't remember this exact quote, but I'm going to paraphrase. It's like, uh, if you want to learn fast, learn from others. If you want to learn deeply, learn by yourself, something like that. It's a, it's a pretty bad paraphrase, but I like the idea of it. This is a, that's a huge one. And I totally agree that say with a gymnast, that's somebody who a lot of their learning has happened in the pre-conscious phase of their development. Like they've not even understood what they're doing before, like the, the, these kind of modules have been installed into their, their mind and body. And so for them to then teach it, it's almost like trying to explain to an alien, like, how do you reach over and take a drink of water with this glass? Like it's, it's like, it's embedded. Just, and it's yeah, exactly. right again, interesting. Like there's some videos I was watching of uh, Charlie Tamayo, who's a very high level gymnast and very high level coach. And he's taking, he's flipping these eight year olds doing these double layouts off the, the low bars. These kids aren't going to be doing that skill for another five years. Right. But he's just flipping and making them do this skill. And what's happening is it's, they don't know what they're doing. They're just flying through the air, but he's giving them that air awareness. And you can't teach an adult like that. You can't just put them through the positions and say, here, this is what you're going to do in five years. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm hoping that um, a lot of the value in people listening to this are people who haven't done any kind of, haven't done stuff beyond like 
the basic gym training, but because I get so many messages of people saying like, how do I just get started with um, learning gymnastics and handstands and, and that kind of thing. And I'd, I'd love to talk through that in a second. I think what resonated or what, why your message resonated so much with me is that I think, and I'm making an assumption here, Yuri, but what, what drives both of us to, towards training is kind of the same in that I just find this idea that we've been gifted this body that we can explore and play around with and it's got so many faculties and so many layers to it and training is a way of expanding that that self um self ability that to try and like sp super specialize into one thing is almost like I'm, I'm too greedy to do that i'm like i'm like oh but the, the adaptations that i would get from just doing that means that i miss out on all these other things and i, totally. and I, I just want to kind of it's like you're at a buffet and there's so many things that you can explore and try and so to me it doesn't make sense when i see a training modality or people that are like super restrictive in like i will only ever use kettlebells or i will only ever eat vegan or whatever because it's like Creates so limitations. And interesting that you say that because when I go to a buffet, I get a, a everything, a little bit of everything. <laughs> I can't know that I didn't taste that thing, even if I didn't like it. I have to at least know what it tastes like. I have to yeah. know this food. Just the FOMO. And yeah, it's, it's exactly, there's nothing wrong. Ultimately, if you, whatever choice you decide, that's what you want to do. But yeah, it's, you have a limited amount of time. Like I used the analogy recently of stove burners. You have these stove burners. You can't do everything at once. If you only know how to do one thing, what kind of limitations does that create? And it, it's and then it, it starts to bias your train of thought as well because when you only know how to do one thing, you become less open to the philosophies of learning something else. And then there's an ego involved with that as well because you get really good at doing this one thing. It, the further you go along that path, the harder it is to, to break that down and say, okay, I'm a beginner again in something else. And what happens a lot is that people who get very high level in something, they have trouble getting that beginner attitude again. They have trouble going to a class of something they can't do. Like, I, again, something interesting. I used to do this too, right? Because I used to think, okay, I'm, I'm decent at handstands and I would go to a dance class, which is something that I'm not skilled in, but I wanted to learn. What would I do during the warm up? I would do a handstand during the dance warm-up. Why? Because I knew that I was probably going to suck at the dance class. So I had to like validate myself. Well, at least I'm good at this one thing. Like who gives a shit? It's yeah, that, that's um, what I'm realizing now is that there is more value in, in not being good. There is more value in sucking at this thing and being accepting that you do. And that's, there's more learning in that because if you keep trying to, to protect, Pretend like I'm doing this, but I'm good at this other thing. No, it doesn't matter. And yeah. I like, like sometimes when I go to workshops and people recognize me, I don't want that. Like I want to go as an incognito, as just a complete beginner, just to do the class. You might have to like shave, shave your beard, like put yeah. on a wig or something. Yeah, like, no, only no, if no. the FBI is looking for me. <laughs> My name's Murray Yonestein. I don't know who that <laughs> other guy. Yeah, like, and and that that also resonates a lot when um you Kit Lachlan describes people going to like when you see dancers go to a yoga class for example and they go in and they stretch their hamstrings and they sit at the front and, it, and it's like the last thing you need to do as a dancer is stretch your hamstrings but because it's the thing that you can demonstrate it's like oh whereas as you said you've got to both have the willingness to face the discomfort of being crap at something and the permission 
to be a beginner at something as well. And I, the, the ego thing totally rings true as well. Like we, so I, um, I went deep down the powerlifting rabbit hole for a few years and I was competing nationally. And even though it, like, it didn't really fit my goals by the time I was like really squeezing the lemon right at the end of it. And obviously the, the, the benefit that you get in athleticism from tumbling and all that stuff and a jump height and everything comes within the first, comes from taking your squat from zero to twice body weight. Or, and then maybe a bit more benefit going twice to 2.5 body weight. When you take it from 2.5 to three times body weight, like all that's happening is you're getting, you probably have to get quite, quite fat to, to, to get to that level. You have to face a lot of injury risk. You're constantly putting yourself under a lot of spinal loading and you feel stiff and horrible all the time. And, and I was like, hang on, what am I doing this for? Like I'm coming in and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to get like 2.5 kilo increase on my deadlift in a year. And I'm got everything dialed in and I'm like, it's like the marginal returns are so low and everything else has to be sacrificed for it. That the only reason I'm continuing to do this is this ego thing, like the sunk cost fallacy. Yeah, exactly. And it, it's, it's it's always a question to ask, okay, why am I actually doing it and what's the purpose and what's the cost? And there's no right or wrong answer. It's if you're doing it for that glory of getting whatever the squat record, it, that's that's a good reason. Anything's a good reason as long as it's honest to you. But yeah, like look at um, what was that interview with uh, with Hafthor and Bjornsson after he pulled the the whatever uh, 500 kilo deadlift or 501 kilo. He could barely get out a couple sentences without breathing hard. So it's like it, what he does is amazing, but clearly there's a sacrifice. And then that's the question. Is that sacrifice worth it? He's real lean now because he's been doing boxing and it's, it's all, um, what are you doing it for? What's the real reason? that's honest to yourself and uh and is it worth to continue sometimes it is sometimes it isn't so do you have any regrets about your your training journey i think everything i've done has been a lesson so it's not like i said if maybe if i had a coach my first five years i could have saved myself a lot of trouble i could have saved myself a lot of mistakes and bad habits in terms of some of the acrobatic movements that took me like so long to learn and then even longer to fix because when i learned it not only did i i not go through the basics and not learn the proper technique from the get-go there's that element of being scared because it, some of these moves are scary and that makes the, the habits cement even harder when you're scared of doing something whatever you're going to do it 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 ingrains itself it latches on so in that sense maybe it would have been nice but honestly i don't think i was ready at that point i think if a coach came along and told me all these things i don't think i would have listened i think at that point i would have been like fuck off look at how much success i'm having by myself i can do a backflip like who are you to tell me so it, it took me even you know another few years to understand how valuable that would have been but i think my ego was too well developed at that point to be able to appreciate good advice that's so interesting so it sounds like actually the inflection point for you both physically and mentally was getting the ego in check and then saying right I'm going to be willing to drill the boring basics and to be bad at something and to try something new and to not just lean into my strengths all the time. Yeah, it's a, it's a hard thing to do. But uh but it's valuable because once 
and I'm still working on it. I still find myself sometimes, you know, I, I get these spikes of ego, like, Hey man, take it easy. You don't need to do that. But, um, yeah, it's, it, there's, there's no, it's always, there's no right or wrong answer. It's, if you can do something well, there's nothing wrong with showing it off. But at the same time, I think you need to, to have that sense of humility because ultimately everyone knows something that you don't. Some people try too hard to project that, but there's always every opportunity or mistake has a lesson. And it's better to make mistakes and learn lessons than to never make any mistakes uh, because you don't learn anything from that. If you only have success, you don't learn how to adapt. You don't learn how to create solutions. It's like this idea that uh, right, the, the kids in sports, they get the participation trophies and then everything is first place. Like what happens when they go out into life? When you're first place when nobody told you or you don't know that you did anything wrong then and what's your perception of yourself it's too high and then what happens when when you have to create a solution when you have to completely redo something because it, it wasn't correct it, it's important to have basically it's i started appreciating my mistakes and started understanding that when i make a mistake that's actually more valuable than when i succeed if i can understand and catch that mistake and learn something from it have you ever success seen- is cool but but there, there's no learning involved in success. Yeah. So, or especially if, if there's no feedback loop and you think you're successful and actually nothing's keeping you in check. Have you have you seen, um, I guess, America's Got Talent or American Idol or th- those kind of programs where where you have someone who like clearly likes to sing in the shower, has no idea that they're a terrible singer and their family are cruel to them and they go like, oh yeah, no, you're great. Like, you should you should apply for this, you should audition. And they just get completely shot down. And it's I think that's the cruelest thing they could do to them because they end up going on national TV and being completely destroyed and having no idea. And their, their, the difference between their, their estimation of their self and their own abilities and reality is, is like, it, the, the dissonance is huge. Yeah. And it's for good TV though. It makes me <laughs> well. So, so this is like interesting. What I'm going to say about that is kind of embedding, but it doesn't make for good TV. Um, and a lot of that is faked. And if you don't say what they want you to say to create that drama, they're just going to edit your words to make you say that. That's kind of how those shows work. There's a lot of like a lot of the stories are really dramatic, but they're not that way in real life. It's like they have to create it. But I would say in terms of that, just in terms of connecting it to that learning process is to have the stoic philosophy of like, oh, something happened and now you're in a good mood. Why does something trivial that you have no control over put you in a good mood? Why can't you just control your own mindset? And if you, if something good happens or something bad happens, why should that affect your state of mind? And same thing with that, like good feedback, bad feedback, if your goal is to be a singer, like take that as it will, analyze it, but don't like, you shouldn't be distraught over a, a negative feedback and you shouldn't be ecstatic over a positive feedback because those are putting you in a, an emotional state that's probably yeah, clouding your logic towards your actual goals. Now that doesn't make for good TV. It doesn't make for good TV when you know someone's like, oh, that was terrible, absolutely terrible. And then someone goes, okay. Cool. Thanks for the yeah. feedback, Simon. I appreciate that. <laughs> uh, yeah. That, okay. now, yeah. <laughs> Nobody's going to watch that. They want to see the, the emotion The oh, I'm so happy. But yeah, that's... Um, that is true. 
like it doesn't make for emotionally healthy practitioners. Um, right. And, and it, uh, it's a bit of both of that too, in terms of the mindset. Okay, you're a shit singer. You should have a, a, an, a enough of, of an awareness about yourself that you have a general idea of where you are in regards. And that goes both ways, because sometimes the people who are ignorant of how bad they are think they're really good. And then sometimes people who are actually very high level are so aware of the subtleties of being at a high level that they have a low opinion of themselves because they know, okay, I'm a classically trained singer, but I've listened to Andrea Bocelli live. And I know that that's a high level that I can't attain. So I'm going to be harsh on myself when in reality that maybe this person has 10 years of classical training that anybody who listened to it would be like, wow, that's amazing. So yeah. there's that level of it as well. Absolutely. There's, I guess there's a few phenomena there. There's, there's the, the Dunning-Kruger effect of people who don't know how bad they, they don't know what they don't know. And so they overestimate yeah. their ability and they get to mount stupid. And then they have the, is it the, the valley of despair? Um, and the the whole Rudyard, the, you've kind of alluded to the, the Rudyard Kipling, Imam Ghazali, like all these kind of um, sources of ancient wisdom that talk about seeing praise and criticism as equal imposters and just focusing on the metrics and seeing how things, um, what, what the reality is telling you. So... And then you have to think about why, like maybe it's without going too deep. I did something somebody praised me for. Why did they praise me for it? Is it because they're biased because they like me as a person? Is it because they legitimately understand the difficulty of what I'm trying to do and think it's good? Is it because sometimes it's a cop out, right? Sometimes teachers will say it's good just to move on. Yeah. And, and sometimes like, again, I was in an acting class a few months ago and the teacher just hammered these two girls who are new to the class. He hammered them on this one scene. He made them do it over over and over again for over an hour, just the same like blocking, the same walking and sitting down. And you know, everyone else in the class is like, you know, face palm, like, and he was just really just focused in on them. And then he had said this thing that was really interesting as well, like this idea of why is like, you might think I don't like you, it's the opposite. I'm making you do this because I like you. If I didn't like you, I'd have said, yeah, that's great. Let's move on. So it's, it's always, yeah, trying to see things from a different perspective. And it's like, why? Why did someone praise or criticize me? Are they biased towards me? Did they criticize me because they want the power of being above me? Or did they criticize me because they're legitimately trying to offer feedback? How much do they know? Is their feedback as a skilled practitioner that has value? What about the feedback as a layman who doesn't understand that also has value? Because like from a, I'm going to use the circus standpoint, a lot of really high level circus skills don't look that impressive to people who don't understand how hard they are. So sometimes it's important to have the, the criticism or the praise of both sides and understanding why why are they criticizing or praising. That's interesting. And that's and that very much applies to a coaching perspective. What about when you're when you're training on your own, how do you how do you keep things objective? Do you do you track the numbers? Do you video yourself? What's your process? I do video myself. I try not to do it too much because it's. I, I think the the more you can look away from your phone, the better it is. And the phone is addictive in so many ways. And that's why I'm trying to get away from all these like apps and all this other stuff because it, it's just it's more stuff that's pulling people towards the phone. Um, but I, I have I have different feedback loops. I have 
in myself what I think it's supposed to feel like. I have this idea of what it looks like when other people do it and trying to compare kind of our body types and learning process. I have this idea of what tips have I gotten? What have I read of people that can do it well or that have criticized me for it? And how can I apply those? And I think there's it's important to have this element of playing around with no expectation, just trying different things. Then there's an element of once in a while you should consult somebody who knows more than you because it's likely you're making mistakes out of ignorance that you don't know they are mistakes because you don't know what you don't know and somebody who has experience will give you feedback on it. I think it's important. So I try to have basically three levels. I have the level of just playing around by myself and trying to trying to do my best to connect it, but also not having too many expectations. Number two is doing research, whatever, watching YouTube tutorials, listening to different people's perspective on the matter. And then three is actual consulting, like actually asking somebody for direct feedback. So I, I try to have those three levels levels of learning something new. And they're all important. If I only work by myself, I might make mistakes that I don't know. Um, there's always a miscommunication when you're doing research. So you can read about something. Doing it is not the same thing. And then connecting it, what did the person who wrote it have in mind? Likely we don't think the same. So there has to be some kind of translation and it's never going to be 100%. When I make a YouTube video, I try to think about how people are going to interpret it and I try to make it so that the interpretation is as clear as possible to multiple learning styles. That being said, I still get comments and people are confused. And I, that wasn't my intent. I'm doing my best, but you can never, I can't download, even if I could download my information to somebody else, the way I perceive that information is not something that's something that I have to predict. Uh, and, and then, yeah, that level of, I don't like being coached too much directly because I like to learn on my own, but I know that it's valuable to have that feedback because a good coach is going to let me know the mistake that I don't know that I'm making. That makes sense. And, and you're using those three methods to really shine the light into any blind spots that you yeah. might have. And you're kind of flipping that and doing the same when you're coaching to, mm. to kind of foolproof things as much as possible. I love that. Hey, Johnny here, just a really quick interruption to this episode to let you know about a resource we now have up and running on propinfitness.com. One of the most popular questions we get from readers and listeners is, hey guys, what would you recommend for my starting calories for fat loss or muscle gain? How much protein, carbs, fat? How many calories should I eat to begin my journey as a starting point? Normally, this is something that we do for clients when they come into our program, the Propin Protocol, but recently, we have opened up the calculator that we use for all of our clients so that you can get a free calculation, a free starting point of what we would recommend if you were to start as a client with us for your protein, carbs, fats, and calories overall for either fat loss or muscle gain, customized to you and your goal. If you want to get access to that, it is totally free. You just have to go to propinfitness.com forward slash calculator, enter your information, and we will send your macros and your calorie recommendations to that email address. And we'll also send you a few free resources over email just to pad that out and ensure that you have the best possible chances of reaching your goals in fat loss and muscle gain. Hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. When, when you are learning a new skill then, in terms of timing, how do you, like, do you periodize? Do you say like, right, I'm going to double down and focus on this one thing? Or do you run many things in parallel? Because the way that I've seen you do this, like it looks like you've nailed a lot of these separate skills. 
yet if you were to see like a crossfitter um do something like they end up very good at crossfit which is kind of the if you're measuring that by the metric of like timing in doing murph or doing like certain workouts but you would never look at any individual part of what they do and say oh they're, they're good at that they're kind of a jack of all trades and unless of course you have one of these crossfitters that used to be an olympic weightlifter and clean and jerks 200 kilos before he even started crossfit in which case that's like previous learning yeah so mostly and this is something i'm trying to work on as well my browser has like 80 tabs open and most of them are just shit that like oh i think that's interesting i'll save it for later and then it just keeps compiling um so most of the skills that i'm doing i'm running all at the same time the exception is handstand which i'm even not, not really training handstands right now because i can't do everything at once but i did spend a good number of years being very regular with handstands and then a few years where i was it wasn't the only thing that I was training, but it was the main priority of my training, meaning that like for, uh, I don't know how many years, maybe five or six years at least, I trained handstands for two, three hours a day, six days a week. And that was like, it wasn't the only thing that I was training, but I sacrificed a lot of other training to put time into that. That. Currently, I do kind of a, a bunch of different things at once because I'm doing so many random things. My schedule's so chaotic. I try to get every time I train, I try to get one lesson. And this is what I recommend people that take my workshops too. Where's the value? I can't give you everything that I know. Even And I, I try. You're not going to be able to retain all of that. There's no way. But if you can remember from every lesson, from every session, if you can remember one thing, if you can get one lesson and then apply that to the next time you train and you think about it, I, I review things in my head a lot, then, uh, then you can continue. So it's just really simple. Every session, like I've been getting into marksmanship shooting recently and I'm still, still a lot to learn right? There's some, some level of skill because I have body control and physicality, but there's also a lot of details I'm not aware of. And it's like, the goal is to get, when I was just at the square range, just every time get a smaller grouping. And I was able to do that just by tweaking one thing every session. I do the session, I think about, okay, what did I change? What did I, how can I apply one lesson to the next one? And then you start to add complexity, but you don't want to take in too much information. So it's that same idea. I try to listen to everything that's told to me, but there's a point that I have to shut it out because I remember just one lesson, one thing, because you can remember one thing. You can't remember 10 things. Yeah. And you absolutely. can remember one thing to the point that the next time you train, you can fix that one thing. And then every time you train, you get a lesson. And then essentially you can make improvement to some degree. And improvement is very subjective. Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes it's not obvious. Um, like sometimes, again, I'm using shooting as the example, like a, a competitive marksman, there's accuracy and speed, and those are kind of inversely proportional to each other. If you go fast, you can't be as accurate. And then there's just efficiency and cleanliness of this, the movements. And then you throw like with handstand as well, you have time and you have aesthetics, and those are the obvious ways to get better. And you might get a longer hold. It might look cleaner. But then what about this idea of being consistent? What about being able to do it under chaotic conditions? What about being able to do it on a cruise ship, on the grass, on a windy day, when you've had a couple shots of whatever liquor, when people are watching you? So it, it's, but everything you do, you have the opportunity to make a mistake. 
if you're not giving yourself the opportunity to make a mistake, then then that's ego. That's like, I, I have this perfect, like, to even things you can do, make give yourself a constraint, make it difficult enough that you might make a mistake and then learn from that mistake. So it kind of comes down to the, whatever we talked about first is this idea of do the skills you don't want to overload yourself. If you're making 10 mistakes at once, you can't catch them, but you want to challenge yourself enough that you're giving yourself the opportunity to make clear mistakes. And then you can catch yourself making those mistakes. And then you can start to correct those mistakes. And in a realistic scenario, you can only correct one mistake. I wish I'd heard that 10 years ago when I'm trying Same. to learn a new, um, a new move, like I'll, and, and especially if you ask for people's advice or whatever, they'll be, someone will be like, oh, throw your left arm up and then pull your right one in. And then, okay, you know, make sure you take off your left leg more and, and no, you need to squeeze your glutes here. And, yep. and, and you end up like trying to hold seven cues in your head at and once. This is like when, when I go to the gym and I see that someone is trying to get help with something and there's like five different people coaching them, even though like, and who knows, I'm, I'm not pretending like, oh, I know better because I have this experience. Maybe I do, maybe I don't. I'm not saying that I do, but when I see someone being coached, by multiple people, I don't help at all because I know it's not going to be helpful. It's just adding even another if, voice into the, yeah, to the mess. Even if I had a tip that was better, it's too late because they've already received too much information. They don't know how which information is better or worse. They're trying to listen to everything and that they're actually doing nothing. And it's uh, it, knowing when to shut out the information. Not necessarily shut out. Like I'm always listening, but knowing when... I'm listening with the intent of doing that later because I already have that one thing to focus. And it's, it's a scientific method to some degree. You tweak one thing. If you change multiple variables, then you're exponentially adding the, the complexity of how much something can change. But if you change one variable, then you it's a lot easier to measure what that does to the entire system. Yeah, 100%. And I think that leads us on to the next question of if you've if you've got someone listening now and they're like, right, this is making a lot of sense. Where do I start? Like what's for someone who's a, a total, total beginner to this stuff, maybe they've, they've lifted weights before or something, but they want to start exploring their body in new, new ways. Um, what's the sequence of things for people to, to learn or what would you recommend? I would recommend before. And, and interestingly enough, if I was to work with somebody who said I'm completely new, I would have them try, as long as it's safe, I would have them try the thing that they want to learn. Like, let's say somebody wants to learn a handstand, they've never been upside down. I want to say try a handstand. I don't care how bad it's going to be, as long as you can do it safely without hurting yourself. I just want to see what it looks like, because then it lets me know, are there psychological restrictions we have to work for? Are there physical restrictions? How much is the technique going to change? What is their perception of what the handstand is? So that, there's a lot of that. But basically, I would start people on cartwheels, to be honest. it's I think it's a very basic coordination. It's something that we pretty much all do as kids, and we forget about it. And it gives you a lot of lessons of not only going upside down and supporting the weight on your hands, but also this idea of controlling momentum in a, a different pathway. So I would... Uh, cartwheels is very basic. Pretty much anyone can do some variation of a cartwheel. It, and you have to be okay with, okay, maybe my legs are bent and they're this low. It doesn't matter. When you're starting out, it doesn't matter as long as you're doing something with the intent of getting it better. But if I had to say super general, I think everybody should be able to do a cartwheel. 
And it's a good place to start because it's not dangerous. The chances, even if you com- like fall completely onto your side, the chance that you're actually going to hurt yourself doing a cartwheel is very, very low. And then it's a good way to just start experiencing that childlike state again. Like this idea of a kid playing around, they don't care what their legs are supposed to look like. They just enjoy the movement because it feels good to their body. So this idea that don't worry about how bad your cartwheel is going to be, because if you start to think about that, you're already fucking yourself. Like I know and I just from years of seeing a lot of handstands and doing a lot of coaching is um, I look at somebody's setup. I know what if they're going to fail or not by how they approach it, because sometimes you can see in their body language, they're second guessing themselves. They're looking into the future before it happens. And where's their attention going? It's not in the moment. It's to how bad their failure might be. And you have limited amount of attention. And how many things can you focus on at once? You One know, thing. You're saying, you're saying when, when kids are fearless, like a kid will just throw themselves into something and not really be worried about the consequence. Whereas and it's because they don't know. Like, they don't have they don't have expectation. Obviously, like with kids are less likely to get hurt than adults because they're uh, they're loose and floppy like a rubber. Like that's why uh, you know you throw a kid on the floor, they just they mold to the floor and bounce back. But why is that? Why can't adults do that? It's because kids don't know that they could get hurt. They don't have that perspective and there's actually safety in not worrying because what happens when you worry? Your attention goes into the bad things that might happen and your attention is limited. Your conscious attention, you can't focus on, even when you multitask, you're still not focusing on many things at once. You're just switching back and forth. And if some of your focus is going towards the bad things that can happen that haven't happened yet... That's that's a lot more dangerous. Not all the time. Depends on the skill. It depends on the situation. But that's more dangerous than just going for it. And I, again, obviously, you have to show discretion. Like you shouldn't be chucking a double backflip because you saw somebody do it. There's a healthy fear because that some skills are legitimately dangerous if you're not ready, even if you're ready to do them. But yeah, this idea of not. Not knowing, I think this is why a lot of times when I take classes, I specific, and I research things a lot. If I know I'm taking a class, like a workshop or a seminar, I specifically don't research the subject matter because I don't want to have the expectation of what it's supposed to be because that can be um, something that limits your experience as well. Like you think of what a cartwheel is supposed to be. No, forget that. Just you have a vague image and then do it. And then after you do it enough times, you have more awareness that you can start changing these things about it. But uh, not not knowing what's supposed to happen and just doing something just to see what happens. I think that's something we lose a lot as adults. Nice. Like that. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do something just to see what happens. And it doesn't matter what happens because whatever happens, I'm going to learn from it. And you'll you'll get the exact feedback that you need for that rather than the theoretical feedback and you're like, well, or the, th- the information about it, you're like, well, that might not apply to me. And I, the only yeah. way to know is to try. And you, you're right. Like, I think the most satisfying thing to coach actually is getting someone to do a cartwheel, someone who's never done that stuff before. Cause the joy on people's face when they're like, oh yeah, it's like they're almost finding this, like digging up this old thing that they could do in their childhood and they haven't done in 20, 30 years. Yeah, and a lot of times they put that constraint like, oh, I haven't done it in 30 years. Who cares? Like, oh, I'm not as graceful as you. Who cares? Who expected you to be? 
If yeah. you're as graceful as yourself, and if you know that that you're not graceful and that you can improve that, and you legitimately believe that you can improve from where you are, that's all you need. That's the mark of a good student. That's cool. Is there any are there any patterns that you observe in desk workers that that you think like this is what they need to explore or play with or or work on? I think um this is a, a bit maybe a bit overreaching. The it's people kind of they they loop their lives into that's not the right word loop, but uh, like they have their workout and they have their uh their work and those are like separate entities but this idea of combining some of this movement just into your daily life and making it compulsive so instead of having eight hours where you sit at a desk and one hour where you train why not just at a certain maybe in the beginning you're going to have to set a timer to remind yourself like okay i've been sitting for an hour i'm going to take five minutes just to stretch just to move but then it becomes compulsive and then it's like this idea that uh i've been confined I don't know why, but I have this compulsive urge to just like move my body because that's a natural thing to do. That's what animals do. Again, you know, cats are the best example. They're also some of the most flexible mammals. It's compulsive for them. It's not like, oh, I, I should get a workout. It's like, oh, I feel frisky. I'm going to do some sprints. Oh, I've been laying for a few hours. So I'm going to get up and I'm going to stretch myself. So kind of getting this animalistic intent of you've been sitting, you should feel in your body that you need to move. That's that's one thing. And it's yeah, it's not a pattern. It's just getting into this mindset that it should feel natural. It shouldn't be like programming is a word that we use a lot. It shouldn't be programmed. It should be programmed into your subconscious that you should be moving throughout the day, even if you're sitting. That's cool. I think a lot of the restriction from doing that, part of it comes from just being feeling like a slug and being lazy or being caught up with the work and, and you end up losing losing attention with your body because you're so focused on what's happening in you know but so focused on the emails or whatever but but also being in an open plan office you, there's a social pressure to not be weird that's and important I, too yeah you, you have I, to not care what people think about you because your health is more important than people's opinion in definitely. my opinion like i i used to work in an investment bank and I had a hockey ball that I would like use to, to, to put in my glutes and piriformis and stuff. And, uh, uh, but I was like, I don't feel comfortable enough considering how junior I was to like get the resistance band out and do the rear delts and postural things. And there was a few people that would like, you could tell that they were, they'd maybe walk to the coffee station and back just, just to get some movement or they'd stand up when they're on the phone, like little subtle ways to, to, to fit this in. But now luckily most people working from home, that constraint has gone. And so I guess we can give ourselves permission to to do that and to, you know, we're in a, a private space now to move as we like, set up our desk as we like. And yeah, it's because uh, I worked in an office for a while as well, just for a couple of years. And yeah, these social standards of um, why is it wrong to want to move a little bit? And then it, it's like, you risk people looking down on you because you're trying to to take care of yourself and to some degree it's I, I don't know if that's part of it but what is that like that crab the crab bucket mentality like mm -hmm. some people don't want to see you succeed they don't like to know that you're working on improving yourself and they're going to look down on you because maybe they're self-conscious of their themselves i got this was years almost eight years ago now i was stretching in an airport before a five-hour flight 
And I was not super inconspicuous. I was doing some fairly big stretches, but it's not like the airport was super packed. And this, um, was a guy maybe in his fifties, maybe 60 overweight was uh, sitting a couple seats down from me. And he would just scoff every time I changed a stretch. And eventually he got up and yelled at me like, can you just be normal? Like, Whoa, bro. And it's an interesting thought of, um, is that, is that on me? Where is that on himself? Maybe he's just viewing what he could have been if he hadn't let himself go for many years. I don't know. I didn't have a conversation with him. I didn't want to, but it's like clearly something that really upset him though. Like, yeah, yeah. It, it, he was legitimate because he was on that same flight and he gave me a stare down and I was <laughs> getting on that fight. Like, bro, I'm just stretching. I know that I'm going to be immobile for, or close to it for five hours. So, so why? Because he's been I immobile for the movement? last five years. So. Uh, more than that, probably. Yeah. And it, it's an interesting thought. And coming back to that learning process, a lot of times people are apprehensive of starting because they're looking to the future. They're looking, they think, I want an apple tree. This seed is so tiny. This seed could never be the tree, so I'm just not going to plant it. Instead of thinking, what can I do now, knowing that it's not going to look like that thing maybe in a few years. And understanding that, like to a little bit of a cliche quote, but the uh, the day you plant the seed is not the day you eat the fruit. So it's people think like, okay, I want my shoulders open so I can do handstands. But currently my shoulders are, well, we're not recording video, I think, but currently my shoulders are nowhere close to being at a straight line to my body. Oh, I could never do that. I'm not going to start. What if you actually just started with where they were, get uncomfortable, take a couple years to continue being uncomfortable, and then you'll be surprised with the results. But if you think, oh, I could never achieve what it took somebody else probably a few years to do, then you're setting yourself up for failure in the first place. Interesting, I got a comment recently from someone who took my workshop a couple of years ago, and he, he had like a flex, very tight hips. And he said he consulted different people. Some fitness experts told him just to get a surgery to get a fresh start. And I said, like, hey, yeah, you're not. I don't even remember saying this, but it's something that I would say. Like, yeah, you're not flexible. So what are you going to do about that? Don't dwell on what it could be. Start doing stuff. Be consistent. Get uncomfortable. Get uncomfortable on a regular basis and expect it to take a couple of years. Like, if you expect that you're going to stretch once and the next day you're going to see results, like, that's not going to happen it's likely that it's going to be up and down. So just if you actually have no expectations and continually work towards something for a couple of years, that's a much more realistic learning process than oh, 30 days to getting your splits. That's right. That's a, that's a marketing lie. It's a yeah. very enticing, but how realistic is that? It's uh, that completely I'm unrealistic. <laughs> yeah. How realistic is that when the people that are... <laughs> that are showing you those splits probably took years to get them. But, must but be it, a and it, it's a, it's a hard thing to, and again, it's one of those mindsets that I had to really understand as well is that what I'm doing today, it's not for today. It's planting a seed for years down the line. I'm looking at uh, the more cliche quotes, but I can't jump to the top of the mountain. If I want to get there, I have to take a step and those steps are going to seem insignificant. But if I just spent all that time worrying about how many steps I had to take to get there, that energy could have been spent actually taking those steps. Yeah, I see. And I think there's a lot of global lessons in what you've mentioned here, particularly the stuff about 
the restrictions we place on ourselves because of social pressure and the 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 deferring of um the deferred gratification all that kind of thing and you started acting lessons recently as well how does this and the movement practice that you've been doing tie in with your psycho-spiritual work it, everything is it's not connected but it is you don't have to be a it's really interesting just learning anything new and then applying those lessons, but also understanding that some of these lessons you've never learned before. So one of the the big lessons that my acting coach, um, I'm going to give a shout out, Ryan R. Williams. He's an awesome, awesome teacher, a lot of perspective, minimal movement, right? So I'm used to moving a lot. And when I talk, it's natural for me to pace. But then what happens on camera, especially if it's a tight frame, if it's, uh, you know, we're at 70, 80 millimeter lens or whatever, any movement that you make, you're going to be out of focus or you're going to be out of the frame. So it's this idea that you have to have that same intensity, the, the same intention, the same emotion without moving. So that was one of the earliest lessons for me is like, this thing that you think, and this is really important of being open to it because uh, I went into this class like, okay, I've been on YouTube videos. I've been in a couple of movies, nothing major. So, so am I going to do better than some of these people in the class because I've already been on camera to a certain degree? And then the reality, like the first class, we did this thing that was really interesting because it's this. it was literally something that I've been doing for a living for eight years. And all of a sudden, I found it difficult. And the exercise was um, you just stand, you plant yourself, you get into a good posture. Good posture on camera is not the same as necessarily good posture standing, but it, it's you look more powerful when you have a height and length. And this was the exercise right? You, you pick up an eyeline, you pick a point, you stand completely still. And for one minute, you deliver uh, lines on something that you're an expert in, right? So you just talk about something It could be fake, you could make it up, you could improvise, could be something that you're legitimately an expert. And I was nervous. And I was like, okay, I'm gonna talk about handstands. And all of a sudden, I was nervous to stand and talk about handstands in front of a group of strangers. My heart was beating. Like This is literally something that I've been doing as a professional for seven years around the world. Why is this constraint making me nervous? And that's what acting ends up being is that the simplicity is more difficult than the complexity. Like sometimes you, you have to take two steps on camera and make it look a specific way. And you would never think how much complexity it takes to open a door and walk two steps until you have to do it. Okay, we have to change the angle. We have to change the camera. Your steps are too fast. They're too small. You have to stand in this specific place so we can get this image. And it's a lot of these details. And ultimately, it's it's very brain intensive because you're thinking of so many different things at once because you have the emotion, the eyeline, the actual lines, the stillness, understanding the frame of the camera and it, it's how does it coincide with the movement practice it doesn't because it's minimal movement but in minimal movement you still have to be a good mover because uh, again it's like i said we were doing this scene in an upcoming film and this i had no lines in this particular scene i was uh, kind of like a henchman so i would open the door not to somebody and then walk to one side of the room we probably did 15 takes of that and every time I did it a little bit different because we we're trying to get that image. And it's, I never in my life, I would have thought that opening a door and walking three steps would be that complex. And the, 
you learn to appreciate a lot of these subtle details that go into it. And it's not just about acting. It's about any skill, any art. You learn that what you see people do, they make it look easy, how complex it actually is, and how you appreciate that it's not just something that they, maybe there is a natural ability, but a lot of times it is years of specific training that went into doing it in a way that it's so easy that we don't even appreciate how difficult it is. And then there's the changes of scope, as you said, whether you're doing film acting versus stage acting. and you're Very, very different. Acting with your whole body and exaggerating the movements versus yeah. keeping them. And even and just the, in the frame, yeah, because I'm doing stunts as well. And even just knowing like knowing the technical side of the camera. And yeah, like you said, one of the lessons that uh, that we got as well is that a lot of times stage acting actually builds a lot of bad habits for film acting because of that. Because in a movie or a TV show on a camera, you, you don't need to project to an audience. The audience doesn't see it for another six months until it gets edited. You don't need to project to the crew because that's not what they're there for. So it's like this idea of... Uh, minimalism in many different ways is more powerful on camera than than overacting and then there's levels of that and it's a lot of things and yeah it's just for me it was cool because it's learning a new skill and then you learn i use this analogy a lot as well it's like layers of vision like all of a sudden you can see um, another 50 whatever nanometer wavelength that you couldn't see before and it's been all around you you just couldn't see it like uh, like birds can see magnetic fields right and cats can see into the uv spectrum so whatever we can see they can see more and that's how i like to think of learning a new skill it's like you you learn to see things that turn have been around you all the time, but you've opened up this layer of your vision that now allows you to see more of that. And I can't watch movies and TV shows the same way now because I'm thinking about, okay, how do they frame that? That must have been a difficult scene to film because of this angle and this angle and how they're doing this. I wonder how they did that stunt. Did they, like, it, it's To some degree, it's more difficult to enjoy them. But to another degree, I enjoy them even more because now instead of just watching them, I'm appreciating the layers of work that went into creating this. And yeah, this, these are lessons that you can learn towards any skill set and apply. But I think it's really important to, to be a complete beginner at something and accept it for what it is and take those lessons. And then you learn that new layer of vision. And then as a teacher as well, now I appreciate another thing. Now, if I'm teaching, that's one of the reasons why I, I did weightlifting and dance classes and all this other stuff, because they speak a different language. Because if I'm teaching handstands to weightlifters, I'm going to try to speak their language compared to if I'm teaching it for a dancer. And if I was to teach a handstand workshop at a CrossFit and a dance studio, it would be the same information presented in basically a different language because I have to think how they do and doing that skill, like taking a few years of dance classes did not make me an expert dancer, nowhere close, but it gave me enough perspective to know that this is how dancers think. And if I explain it to them a certain way, it might have more success. Likewise, this is how weightlifters think because I've done that for a few years. So that, that's what it comes down to as well is being selfish as a teacher because when I learn a new skill, I learn a new perspective with which I can teach the skills that I already know. I like the idea of that you're attuning your vision to something. And I think a phenomenon that, we, that I see 
with any the cycle of learning any skill or any system is that you start off not being able to make sense of what you're seeing. So like, like you described there, you're watching a film and this is before doing any acting, you watch a film and, and it hits you like a chord, like you, like a musical chord. And you, you don't, you can't put your finger on why a scene is powerful or not, but you're just like, yeah, that, that affected me. Then you go through the process of learning about how a set is set up and where, where the microphones have to be and what, what's going through the actor's heads. And, and you've broken the fourth wall and you're able to then see it from the technical perspective. But I think when you're deep in that, you end up, it overlays the, what you're seeing. And sometimes for a while, you can't, you can't get that same enjoyment of a fresh pair of eyes would. And then you go full circle to eventually being able to see both or to move between them. And for example, um, as, as a doctor, I think you start to see things, things that you saw as a student where you're like seeing individual signs and like, and then the, the, the senior doctor would be like, okay, so this is a sick patient because of X, Y, and Z. And eventually you see enough of that presentation and you get to the point where as a, you know, you might see a senior consultant who's been doing a particular branch of medicine for 30 years and they'll just walk in the room and they'll be like, that patient needs to be admitted. And they can't articulate why, but it's just because all these data points have just formulated themselves and they're just, it's like a gestalt. Um, traders have the same thing. They might look at a chart and be like, oh, we need to sell that. But they can't necessarily articulate why, because all of that processing has been done under the hood. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's super interesting. Like, even in my own teaching perspective, I remember when I first started teaching, I didn't know what I was doing. So I would just like throw one thing, one thing that I know. And it was a very simple thing, right? And then I was kind of so, because I did so much studying, then I would give people eight things like, here's the eight things that you're doing wrong. And to, that was an ego as well, because I'm not helping somebody by telling them eight things that they're doing wrong. I'm helping myself like, oh, look at how many things I noticed. And then I came back to, to telling them one thing. Even if I noticed eight things, there's like that thread. What's the root cause of those eight things? If I pull one thread, how many of the other threads can unravel? And it comes, yeah, it comes back down to um, to simplicity at full circle. Like before learning any acrobatic stuff, if you take a layman and you show them someone doing a, a trick, but something slightly wrong, they might be able to be like, yeah, it doesn't look quite right, but I, I can't tell you exactly why. And there might be a whole myriad of stuff that's that's going on there. So you 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 seem like you're not only very reflective about the work that you do, but you also have ha, have used these to work through a lot of internal issues and hangups and ego um, over the years. Do you have like? Can you talk us through your your internal work? My internal work, like well, like you, a in terms like, of like do you have like do you have a spiritual practice like is it or is it more like do you approach it from like a psychotherapeutic perspective or do you meditate or any emotional work that you do um i just think about stuff a lot i don't have any specific practice that i follow but i i try to and again like for many years i um i kind of shut out all emotions because i thought that was superior thing to do and then I, I let them trickle back and in acting class again it's this idea that okay i experiencing i need to connect that now so i'm experiencing that i feel an emotion what do i feel and why do i feel it i don't want to act on that because i want to be rational and logical but i want to understand where these emotions are coming from and it, it's like this idea of why 
why does this thing make me feel the way I do? And then just looking kind of deep into myself of, uh, of why does that affect me? And uh, th this is a, a game that I play just kind of a thought exercise. And I think it's a good life lesson as well. So, so if something bothers me or if something goes wrong, again, it, it may not be the case. It's just a thought exercise. I'm going to pretend that it's completely my fault. So then the idea is what can I do? What could I have done better to prevent that, to make that better? Or if something bothers me, what can I, why does that bother me? And what can I change about myself? What can I do to improve that? Because it's always easier to blame others, to blame external factors. And sometimes you can't control those external factors. So it's like, how do you control yourself to better deal with those external factors? I don't have any, any kind of like spiritual practice that I do, but I like to spend enough time alone with my thoughts. I like to to have moments where I just let my thoughts wander and see where they go. So kind of like a half sensory deprivation. Like I don't do this enough, but so the, what do you call it? The earmuffs for shooting, the hearing protection. If I put those on, they're pretty good at sensory deprivation and close my eyes. That's like a budget, uh, that's like a budget float tank to some degree. And if I do that and then just kind of let my mind not think about anything in particular, let my mind go where it needs to go. Because I don't want to force clearing my mind because there's always something going on. It's always circling. But if I just let the thoughts happen that are at the top of it and kind of let them go and see where they go and get to this kind of free form, free flowing thought, that becomes really interesting because then I'm not. I'm not worrying about the stuff that I have to do in that day. But yeah, that, that's just really simple. That's just literally I go stand outside and I close my eyes and I listen to the sounds or I put on the headphones, not the headphones, the earmuffs. Um, but I think spending time alone and being okay with that is important. That's something a lot of people lose. Uh, spending time in silence as well because people need to fill the silence. And now it's so easy because you just turn on your whatever, you turn on your Alexa to whatever music and just think of back in the day, there was only live music because there was no way to record it. So what did people do in the silence? They had to, had to do something. Yeah, boredom think. is not something that that like this decade very few people have ever experienced boredom like true yeah. boredom it's a very very strange thing that an entire subset of emotion has has disappeared from people's spectrum and i think i like what you described there it sounds like initially you took quite a stoic approach and but almost down and i realized that i was restricting myself from taking that stoic approach because i was forcing it why would i why wouldn't i let myself feel these emotions that's part of being human so i want to let myself feel the emotions but i don't want to act on them but i want to understand where they come from and what is it about me or my life or my background or perspective that invokes these emotions that happen and from that i can understand more of myself and then from that perspective of acting i have something to pull on still working on that it's very much a work in progress but then i have something to pull from when i have to express those emotions there's for anyone listening there's a practice that's been popularized by naval ravikant that very much reflects what yuri's described here which i'll find the link and put it in the show notes but it's it's called something like achieving mental inbox zero 
And the idea is 60 minutes every day for 60 days, you sit down, you do exactly what Yuri's just described, which is you just let all these open loops and backed up, clogged up thoughts and kind of um, things just come up and bubble out. And you do reach a point eventually where there's no more to bubble out and you literally feel like you've cleared your inbox and you're like, oh, <laughs> I can think. There's an again. interesting uh, quote I heard a while ago is something like you should meditate for 10 minutes a day. And if you don't have time, then you should do an hour a day. Yeah, that's um, Dalai Lama, I think. Something, yeah, I don't remember where I heard of it. It's, it's an interesting, interesting thought. I've, I've definitely been in, <laughs> in that situation before. Oh, I don't have time. And you're like, hang on, this is what I need to prioritize. So just to wrap things up, Yuri, how, I mean, how have you found this year? It's, it's been interesting. And I've learned a lot of, I've learned more about myself than I thought I ever could have based on what happened, my reaction to that, watching how other people react to, to everything that's been happening and just connecting all that. And then like, I've learned, I've learned that I'm not the type of person that I thought I was based on how I've responded to these events compared to other people. So essentially my whole line of work was completely shut down like the thing that i've been doing for seven years um completely canceled i don't know if that's going to happen again for a while or if that happens i don't want to get into my thoughts on <laughs> on mandatory vaccinations for travel but basically if that's the case i may not be traveling for uh, a very long time I, again i don't know so so it's this idea okay things are and i've been i was injured for most of 2020 as well so i actually couldn't even do handstands because i was dealing with a neurological issue in my hand so it's like not only is my line of work shut down i can't even practice the thing that people know me for. So then it had to look deep. It's like, who am I? Well, I, I don't want to, who I am as a person is not the thing that I do. And how do I best express that? So take steps, right? Do something else. I've transferred some of the business online. It's not I'll be completely honest. It's what I'm doing now. It's not nearly as satisfying as teaching in person. That being said, it still allows me to keep my blade sharp in terms of teaching. It allows me to reach people, allows me to practice different skills. So moving the business online and then starting new things like acting, um, voice acting work was another one. I was like, okay, I, I've been interested in this. So I have some time. Let's take some classes. Let's see where it goes. Because now that I'm home, I actually have the opportunity to learn new things. And I couldn't do that when I was traveling all the time. Same thing, getting into stunts, getting into movie stuff, because it's something that I wanted to do. But I was so caught up with all of this traveling. And I kept telling myself, okay, I'm going to travel less. I'm going to travel less. But it's what I knew. So I kept booking more travel. And, um, and I, I kind of manifested it. I don't know if that's the right word. I didn't want all travel to be shut down. That wasn't my intention. I just wanted to spend a little bit more time at home. But yeah, in doing so, I learned a lot about that. And it's like, I, I always thought of myself, I guess, as a negative person, but I use that negativity to fuel myself. And, and turns out it wasn't the case at all. It's because I, I'm looking at some people's mindset. It's like they want things to be bad. It's like things are bad and, and I want them to be worse because then I can blame my shitty life on how bad things are. Mm -hmm. And it's, yeah, I'd rather look to myself. I can't do this. This path is blocked. There's a tree on the road. 
Am I going to sit there and wallow in the fact that I can't go anywhere? Or am I going to take some steps towards either chopping this tree down or getting it off the road or finding a different path? And that might take time. Like I said, I started the stuff, you know, in April, May, June of last year. So in a year of doing stuff, uh, I, I, I use that seed analogy, the things that I've been working on for the last year are now starting to, to keep me busy to the point that I can't do everything at once. But it took a year for that to happen. And yeah, it's just this idea of of being trying to be objective, trying to control what I can't control, trying not to dwell over what I can't control, living my life and not letting these external influences affect me like, oh, I watched this thing on the news and now I'm in a sad mood today. Why would that, why would something that doesn't affect me directly or even something that does have any kind of effect on my emotions and my mindset? It shouldn't. So yeah, just this idea that you keep moving. If you can't move this way, you find a different way to move and you just keep going with that. And it's, it's that idea of adaptability. And I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with the business. I'm not pretending like I do know, but I would rather know that I'm taking potential steps to continue it, maybe in a different manifestation, and then taking other steps to maybe do something else in case it all goes to shit, in case I can never travel and teach a workshop again. I don't. That's probably not going to be the case. But what if it is? And it's like, I know this summer, or I guess last summer is one of the questions I asked myself, like, um, my hand was pretty bad at one point that I was asking, it's, it's a lot better now, but I was asking myself this question, like, what if I could never do a handstand again? This thing that I did for years, this thing that so many people around the world know me for, what if I could never do that? How would I salvage myself as a person? And then I, that's what I had to think about is I'm not the handstand. I'm somebody who used the handstand to learn specific life lessons, and I'm happy to teach that, but I don't want that to be what people know me for because who I am is not what I do. Yeah. And the people that have made the best progress this year have been the ones that have done, like you said, they've pivoted. And yeah, I, I've definitely experienced that. You know, when I was I was competing in powerlifting, I was like, oh, I feel like I'm identifying as the, the powerlifting guy. And then I, I blew out my L5S1, which was pretty nasty. Um, lost motor function on my left left leg as well. So I, <laughs> I know what it's like to have a, a neuro injury as well. And you're just thinking like, hang on, what do I, do I have to then re like how much of my identity have i placed in this and you you see it with with some um powerlifters that will like they'll live on mcdonald's and they'll get the all the metal um heavy metal tattoos and um t-shirts and like identify with being like the fat powerlifter guy and it's like but yeah so and and it's it's why also we help personal trainers move online and that's that's been the, the people who have made the best progress financially have had some of the best financial years of their of their life in 2020 because they've moved from running a, a studio gym or working as a pt and they've thought okay circumstances have changed now rather than sit and wait for things to get better i'm gonna i'm gonna pivot here so that is awesome to see and i think for anyone listening if you ever have an injury seeing it as Yuri did there as an opportunity to specialize on something else or gyms are closed. Okay. 
double down on body weight stuff and there's no one better than yuri to um to to have a look at for this stuff and you, you've you, you said just before you have a, uh, a membership site now for for body weight training yeah so i just launched this it's still pretty new it's still kind of in its infant phases but essentially it's i'm going to be doing regular online classes that are live on different subjects i like to change it up and then those will all be archived so as we keep going we're going to build an archive of all these classes that you can follow along with uh and yeah that's pretty new you can even do a week free trial if you want like i said it's still in its infant stages it's still only uh, a couple weeks old but that's a way to to train with me online to get some of the philosophy and the the perspective and the actual exercises of course as well i would 100 percent recommend having a look at that and uh yuri how can we find out more about you you can go to my website it's still under construction that's everything's always under construction so uh check out my website that's why you are i-mar.com uh, i have a pretty unique name so if you just search it you can find something check me on uh, instagram facebook I'm not on TikTok. I'm not. That's, I'm, I'm not good. there. It's not. I just don't see how that would be helpful. Like, uh, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't have a TikTok. I don't have a Twitter. I don't have a. I think I have a LinkedIn. I should probably actually do something with that. So Facebook and Instagram are my main social medias right now. I try to post regularly. The stuff that I post is. I don't post the same thing all the time. I change it up. So it's not like a handstand account where every photo is going to be handstand. It's a lot of different stuff. I try to post a lot of perspective and philosophy. My goal is not just to, hey, guys, I'm showing you that I'm still alive. It's to to get people to think. And if I can get somebody to change their perspective or modify their perspective, to me, that's a huge success because all of my pivotal moments have been from changing my perspective on how I think about something. Um, I do offer one-on-one -on -one online coaching, but I'm kind of slowly phasing that out because that's a very time-intensive thing for me and energy-intensive, and it's uh, I, I can only do so many things at once. So it's going to be moving more towards the, the online classes. Um, I have a lot of video courses I'm about to release that I've been filming over the last year and a half that have not been open to the public. So that's another thing also on various topics. Um, I have another, uh, series of courses that are the, basically I did a couple live workshops in Florida at the end of last year, and we brought in a film crew with multiple angles and it was properly filmed. And these other guys who are professional, uh, video editors and graphic designers and marketing guys, they're putting together courses from that. So that's going to be kind of the, the recorded workshop experience. So that's also something to check out. I think the website is joinreps.com. Um, and I'm pretty open too. So if you just send me a message, I do respond to all of my DMs and emails. Try to be quick about it as much as I can. So that's always another way to contact me. But uh, yeah, just trying to, to figure out life and then hopefully helping other people <laughs> gain perspective to figure out theirs. That was exciting. And there's a lot of value in a lot of your content. And as we talked about, it's really directed at someone who is new to this stuff and to, to give you the very key things to go away and explore and and still leaving some of the experimentation in the hands of the of the viewer as well so it's not it's not super didactic but it's it gives you all the guidance i like to think of it 
These are my words as a guided self-exploration. I don't want to tell you what to do because I'm not you, but I want to give you options on things that you can try, maybe give you perspective on how I feel, on how I've worked with other people, and then hopefully the idea is to, to teach people to teach themselves. It's not to... I don't want to tell you what to do. Even when I do like a follow-on class, I always say, if you only do what I do, you're not getting the full benefit. As a beginner, that's fine because you don't know what to do yet. But the idea is to take the concept and explore it for yourself. And that's kind of my my whole philosophy on teaching these days anyway, is that idea of, of a guided self-exploration. Like, hey, go that direction, but go there at your own pace. I love that idea. And that's... That's what a, a good coach should be doing, is empowering their clients to to move beyond the coach and to to grow themselves. Awesome. Yuri, thanks for coming on. Yeah, cheers, my pleasure. Hey, Johnny again. Hope you enjoyed that episode. So we have an opportunity for you, something that we have put together that is totally free, that is a synthesis of everything that Yusuf and I have learned in fat loss, muscle gain, nutrition, training, lifestyle, habits, the works. Everything that you hear on these podcasts, condensed and more, condensed into a synthesis of seven days of learning and immersive experience to totally overhaul, enhance, and accelerate the results that you're getting currently in your training and your nutrition, no matter how advanced you are or aren't. We put together a virtual learning interactive coaching experience called the seven day kickstart that you can take part in whenever you're ready to. To join, simply go propinfitness.com forward slash seven day kickstart. Enter your details and you'll be sent everything that you need. You'll be coached by the Propin Fitness coaching team over seven days for free. You'll get seven days of content sent to your email completely for free. And it gives you a look behind the scenes of what we do with clients and gives you a ton of information that previously was only available to paying clients inside of our world. So propinfitness.com forward slash seven day kickstart to take part and we hope to see you inside. See you in the next episode. Speak soon.